Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be. If you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? Uh, we have some ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. And uh, we started a series in the book of Acts a couple weeks ago. We're going to just keep making our way through this verse by verse, chapter by chapter. The book of Acts is a story. So uh, if uh, you are kind of new to the Bible, new to try to understand a little bit about what the Christian story is all about, uh, this is actually, I think, a great way to kind of get introduced into what God's doing and what God was up to and how God continues to do what he began uh, 2,000 years ago. So what I want to do is we're going to read. In fact, the way that I want to read is I want it for us to be engaged. So I'll have all you guys stand up. It's a way for us to show uh, our respect towards God and towards God's word. And I'll read about verse uh, 1 down about verse 13. I'll pray and then we'll jump right in to the teaching this morning. So Acts chapter 2 verse 1 starts like this. Now, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And then suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And then divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages or other tongues as the Spirit of God had given them utterance. Now, these were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews who were devout men of every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and astonished, saying, not all of these who are speaking Galileans. And how is it then that each one of us hear them speak in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them all telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and well as perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, these are all drunk or filled with new wine. So God, right now we ask you that as your word has been spoken, this is your word, we pause, we breathe it in. God, what we ask for this morning, that this would not just be an intellectual exercise, but that you would transform our hearts and our souls, our minds, as well as our intellect. God, everything. We ask that you would do a complete transformation and makeover upon us as humans. God, we want to reflect you. We want to rightly respond to you. So God, let your word begin to shape, let your Holy Spirit begin to remake our hearts so that we would trust you and love you. And so we commit this time in your hands, and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So the book of Acts, uh, as I mentioned, alluded to earlier, is this big story. It's the story of the early church. Um, what we just read is a really important part in the beginning stages of the storyline. Um, a lot of people would, I think, wrongly describe that this is sort of the birth of the church. The reason why I say wrongly is because really, for the most part, if you're familiar with the Old Testament as well as kind of New Testament, the idea or the concept of a church is really not new. Um, the Old Testament, actually, the word that's used for church uh, also has a Hebrew word, and both the Hebrew and the Greek basically mean the same thing. That in the Old Testament, the, the children of Israel are actually described as the church in the wilderness. So what that means is the word church just simply is a word that describes people that have been called by God 
and then assembled or gathered. And so um, the, a company, or the company of Jews in the wilderness were, by definition, described as the church. The New Testament had this company of people that were called by Jesus, gathered together in this room. They were, by definition, described or called the church. So uh, to describe this as sort of the birthplace of the church, I think, is not the best, most accurate form to describe what's happening here. Rather, what I would suggest is that what's happening here is the, there, th- this is the beginning of a transition from the people that were part of this old, um, uh, dis- uh, how would I describe it, this old tradition or this old uh, covenant of the church transitioning into new covenant people. In other words, they went from being people that did not have God's Holy Spirit residing within them to becoming people that now have God's Holy Spirit residing within them. So this is really what we see, is really this radical transition from an Old Testament community people of God becoming New Testament community people of God. So the question then naturally arises, what does the difference mean? What happens? What happened to them that transitioned them? And the answer, I think, really clearly uh, falls upon us uh, being the Holy Spirit is the very pivot point. He is the one that transitions them from being an Old Testament people to becoming a New Testament people. So with that question, what does that really mean then for the Holy Spirit to come upon God's people? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for the early church? So those are the questions I really want to try to understand here this morning. Before we jump in, uh, we got to talk a little bit about the subject of Pentecost. Because for some of us, when we hear the word Pentecost, I have a nice little fancy diagram for you guys. Uh, to kind of think about this and understand it. So there's three different ways in which we can think about Pentecost. The first two that are there on the list uh, are the way that uh, first century Jews would have been familiar with the concept of Pentecost. So for example, when Jesus told the disciples, I want you to go into Jerusalem and wait there for Pentecost. In their mind, they would have been familiar with the uh, celebration of Pentecost in an Old Testament sense in at least one of these two ways. The first way in which Jews would have understood the concept of Pentecost would have been, it would have marked what's called the Festival of Harvest. The word uh, Pentecost is actually a Greek word, which just simply is the Greek word for 50. It actually comes from the uh, Hebrew word, which is Shavuot. Um, and what it, what it celebrated was 50 days after Passover. If you remember, the Passover was when uh, God called the children of Israel to slay a lamb, to put blood on their house. It was a remembrance of when they came out of Egypt. Uh, through the wilderness and so on, through the Red Sea, I should say, into the wilderness. And so from 50 days after the celebration of Passover, they were to basically begin a markdown or a countdown. That countdown was to go to the number 50. And on the 50th day after Passover would be the celebration of what's called the Festival of Harvest, which we call, obviously, for obvious reasons, 50, the feast of or the celebration of Pentecost. So what that basically meant was on the Festival of Harvest, this is when they would bring all of their, basically, um, grain that they would have produced, and they would have a big party. So you imagine the, the Festival of Pentecost was a great big party. It was a great big celebration. I've never taken part of a harvest. I've never really worked on a farm, ever. I've never even really been around a farm. Um, we've owned a cat before and a dog, but other than that, we've never been around a goat. I would love to have a goat, but the point of the matter is, back on track, is... Um, if you grew up on a farm and if you were part of an actual harvest and you brought in the grain and you brought in everything, and uh, I've been told that afterwards it's just a big celebration because you're all tired, everybody's just wiped out because you've been working really hard for a very long extended period of time, but now the work for the most part is over. Now you can celebrate. Now you can actually eat 
the fruit of your labor, and it's a big celebration. So, Feast of Shavuot was a very great, big celebration. Uh, Another way to think about Shavuot or Pentecost is that it also coincides with um, the giving of the Ten Commandments or the Torah. This is also the story of this is in Exodus 19 and 20. So what we have here is Moses, if you remember, after they came out of Egypt. So 50 days after they came out of Egypt, um, Moses was called by God to go up to a mountaintop. And at the mountaintop, he was to be given these two tables of stone, uh, the Ten Commandments. And then he was to bring them to the people of Israel. And this was to basically, if you think of it this way, this is sort of the constitution that God written up by his finger on a, or two tablets of stone, um, God gave them to the people of Israel and says, this is the constitution. Um, I'm going to write up for you. You agree to live by this, and uh, I, I agree to keep my covenant and do stuff for you, and you do stuff for me, and then we will be a covenant people. You will be my people. I will be your God. People of Israel said, yes, we'll do that. And this is what ends up being recognized by this particular time. So Exodus 19 and 20 tell a story of how Moses received the Ten Commandments. So, when the children of Israel, the disciples, were told by Jesus, go into Jerusalem, wait for the Feast of Pentecost, they would have been thinking about these two various types of ideas in the back of their mind. They absolutely would not be thinking about speaking in tongues or tongues of fire in their head or rushing mighty wind. None of this would have really been on their mind. They would have been thinking about celebration, having a great party. But at the same time, that's a little bit shocking because... What were they doing at this particular time already? So again, 50 days earlier, every one of these disciples had experienced one of the most traumatic, traumatizing, disgusting, most challenging uh, seasons of their entire life because the one that they had followed, the one that they had loved, the one that they had become friends with, the one that they had admired and worshipped, Jesus, was brutally murdered in front of their eyes. And so here they are now, 50 days later, uh, with this expectation placed upon them by Jesus, celebrate this great big feast of Pentecost. These guys are all literally sitting in this room wondering, will the same fate that came upon Jesus also be shared by us? In other words, will we all be brutally executed just like they brutally executed Jesus? So in other words, you can get the idea that this sense of awareness that they might be next on Rome's death list or kill list. Um, Now Jesus says, go into Jerusalem and wait. So, which brings me to the third point of Pentecost or Shavuot, which the way that we would oftentimes recognize and identify today is that it is the celebration of the gift of the Holy Spirit. But again, they would not have known that at that particular time. They would have just given significance of the first two. So with that being said, let's jump in and begin to enter into the story and try to understand a little bit about what does this mean? What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be given to the church in this context uh, and really from this point forward for all ages? What does it mean for them? What does it mean for us? Those are the questions I really want to try to understand. So I think there's at least four things that we'll take a look at. Three of the things that we'll take a look at actually are tied into three different type of phenomenon that we read about in the story. So if you're paying attention to the story, you notice there were at least three, at least two really crazy scenarios that happened, right? The third, the third one might not have been that crazy. The first crazy thing uh, was that all of them were in this upper room, and all of them heard, didn't feel, they heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind. It's really important. They, in other words, they were all having the same experience, They all heard some sort of 
sound that was thunderous, and it sounded like this rushing, mighty wind. Again, it's phenomenon. It's, it's inexplicable. The second thing that we notice in the story is that each one of them had these tongues of fire. Again, an inexplicable phenomenon. So again, here they are in this prayer meeting. All of a sudden, fire appears on the top, not on the top of a candle, but on top of everybody's head. I got it. Really weird. These types of things typically don't happen in church services. If they do, some of us would be a little bit freaked out. They could happen again, but at the end of the day, we realize these are uh, inexplicable, strange, unique a type of phenomena that happened to them there on this particular day. So again, the question is, what in the world does that mean? The third thing that we notice, and this is kind of the third one that most of the time gets most of the airtime, it's that they all began to speak in an unknown language, or, or actually the, began to speak in tongue. We know that they were actually known languages, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. So these are three phenomena, and so the question I really want to ask again is, what does this all mean? What does this mean to them? What does this mean to us? And then finally, I'll throw in a bonus as well. For good measure. So let's jump in and begin to take a look at what do these things mean. So the first thing, I think, is that it means that really they received, first of all, this power from, un, from outside of themselves. That I think with the coming of this rushing mighty wind, to some degree, there's this emphasis that, that God is saying there is a power from outside of you that is coming upon you, coming within your ranks, within your room, within your within your scenario, within your neighborhood. This is, this is power from outside of you coming within you, upon you, from the outside. Why is this significant? Why is this important? Now, again, going back to the passage, what we read is we read this little scenario that just simply says, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house. So a couple of things to point out that are, I think, significant. One, where's the source of this strange, phenomenal wind or sound of wind? From heaven, right? Comes from heaven, which means it's not from the upper room. It's not from outside in the streets of Jerusalem. It's from someplace else. Comes from heaven. We're told that it was the sound of a rushing mighty wind. In other words, it was not necessarily wind. They didn't necessarily feel wind per se, but it sounded like this mighty rushing wind. And then the final thing is that we're told that it actually filled the entire house. So every single person in this context sensed something about this presence of God, whatever this is, was coming upon them in such a way that it was, it was sensed, it was known. They realized that God was not an abstract idea, a principle, a concept, a morality way out there, somehow ascertained or to work up towards, but that this God that oftentimes feels very distant actually came near, came near. So why is this significant? I think probably one of the most important things to consider about this is that in a lot of ways, I think we live in a culture, for the most part, uh, especially within our day and age, when we think about the concept of something out there being of some benefit to us as a little bit um, abstract. Um, so rather what we do, for the most part, in our culture, we say things like this. And, you know, movie stars say things like this, and rock stars th- say things like this, and pro athletes say things like this. They say things, something along this narrative that says, Look, you have everything you need inside you to succeed. Everything you need to be awesome. It's all within you. You just have to set your mind to it. You just have to think well, think good thoughts, be coached. And it, whatever you set your mind to, you could do. Let's take a look at that, if I can put it this way, that gospel proclamation. Because that's what it is. the gospel proclamation. It's the proclamation of, supposedly, good news. That if you 
Set your mind to it, work hard, aim at it, focus your thoughts, your attention. You could be anything you hope to be and do. The problem is, is that if you live according to that gospel, at some point you'll begin to realize there are certain things that are absolutely, you are powerless to overcome. Do you realize that? There are some things in this life that you are absolutely powerless to overcome. So, for example, you could be somebody that's saying, I will set my mind to do something, and no matter how hard you try to do it, you realize that if you get diagnosed with incurable cancer, no matter how much you desire to achieve, to accomplish, at some point, something over you, beyond you, is going to win out. That cancer will run its course, and once it runs its course and it chews you up as the host, then it's game over. You're powerless. You cannot overcome it. What about within the issues of our own heart? What about if there are scenarios within our own lives that we cannot control? We oftentimes feel powerless. Maybe they're emotions, or maybe they're actions, or maybe they're uh, feelings that you have inside you that you oftentimes are just, they eat you up. You are prey to them. Uh, Martin Luther in probably quoting Augustine, said something like this, that human nature is curved in on itself. I love that picture because really what Martin Luther is portraying is we as human beings, we have this natural bentness. And the natural bentness is not outward towards others and not upward towards God. It's inward where we focus in on ourselves. And that's part of the problem we have is that we, we begin to realize oftentimes the more we press into life, the more we begin to realize what, like, what about if in occasions where your mouth gets you into trouble and the things that come out of your mouth are like daggers and it causes pain in the people that you love, that you care for, and no matter how hard you try, there are occasions where you feel absolutely powerless because of these things. What then? You see where I'm going with this? We all have a nature that's inside of us that for the most part, no matter how much good we try to will or wish or impress or oppress upon our own selves, we still feel ourselves oftentimes completely powerless to really make any advancement. So the question is, where is salvation? Where does it come from? Where does help come from? And the answer that Acts tells us is, from outside of us, is a rushing mighty wind or what is like that that comes upon us and gives life. So let me read a passage out of the book of Ezekiel. It's a passage that maybe some of you are familiar with. It's this fantastic passage where Ezekiel gets this image, this picture of a valley of dry bones. And I'll just read it to you and you can listen to it. It says this, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and he set me down in the middle of a valley. So the picture in your mind is great, big, dry, vast valley in the middle of the desert, no doubt within a drought. And he says, it was full of bones. So imagine this valley filled with bones. He goes on to describe, he says, and then he led me around among them. And behold, there were many, very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very, very dry. So the image, the picture is that they're actually white, which means they've been in the sun for a really long time. These bones aren't just like freshly dead bones. These are really dry, long, dead bones. And then as he's picturing this in his mind, then God says to Ezekiel, it says, son of man, this is what he oftentimes called Ezekiel, can these bones live? And he says, I answered, and I said, Lord, you know. 
And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of God. Thus says the Lord to these dry bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. The word that's actually used, the breath, is a fascinating word because it's a word that also is interchangeable with the word spirit. In other words, the idea of (sighs) that whole concept, that idea, that description, that word breath, the word uh, is also synonymous with the word ruach, which is the word for spirit. The idea is that this uh, uh, could also be a word for wind or rushing mighty wind, the idea here. And so what God is saying to Ezekiel is that this valley of dry bones that's filled with dead, dry bones has the potentiality to live again by something from the outside coming in upon it and giving it life. Verse 6, he goes on to say, And then I will lay on it these sinews, and I will cause the flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In verse 7, he says, So I prophesied as I was commanded by God. And as I prophesied, these, there was a sound and behold, it was a rattling. It was like these bones that came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were this sinews that came upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and then skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. So I think by definition, wouldn't it be safe to say that is a valley of zombies, right? So these dead beings were now resuscitated to some degree, but the only thing lacking is they don't have life. So they look by all, for all intents and purposes, to be alive. They've got sinew and skin, and there they are. But what they lack is any form of real, substantial life. And he goes on to say in verse 9, he says, And then God said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come for and from the four winds, O breath and breath. And breathe on these slain that they might live. So I prophesied as they commanded me, or as God had commanded me. And then the breath came into them, and they all lived and stood on their feet. And they became an exceedingly great army. And then verse 13, it says, And you shall know that I am the Lord, and that I open your graves, and I will raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live the hope of the gospel of God. Not the gospel of the saves, the hope of the gospel of God is that, yes, though we are curved in on ourselves, though we are hopeless when it comes to somehow making life spontaneously come into the deadness of our souls, we have a God that comes upon us, causes us to live. This is the great hope that you and I have. Do you realize how hope-filling that is for us, that gives us a sense of life? Because again, if all that we have left is this gospel that says just wish good thoughts upon your life, at some point when that fails us, and it will fail you, when you begin to realize I have no power over my own mouth and the things that I say and my own actions which sometimes keep leading me down a constant uh, cul-de-sac of brokenness and death, When you have a God that's from the outside that says, I will come and I will save you and I will rescue and I will change your heart and I will give you life though you were once dead, that is freeing. It saves you from your own self-efforts that always lead at some point to failure. Instead, it's this God that comes in upon us and gives us life. And this is the picture that we see in the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit comes upon them like this rushing, mighty wind filling this entire place. The second thing that we see is that I think the Holy Spirit in coming 
also reveals the fact that they were to receive God's presence within. So not only God's uh, power, this power from outside of themselves, it was not just simply some sort of inanimate power or um, power in principle or power that was impersonal, that this was really the power of God. And what we see with regard to that is that God's presence now is going to be coming upon and resting upon his people. And the way that we see this is the way that Luke describes it for us is that while they're in this upper room, kind of hanging out, probably, again, I would just imagine, absolutely terrified. All of them are wondering, are we going to continue to live? Will Rome finally find us? Will we be captured? Will we be crucified? Now here they are in this room, and then all of a sudden, again, this strange phenomenon happens where they have these tongues of fire immediately ignite over their heads, and they're tripping out, no doubt. But again, the idea of fire over their heads, um, as phenomenal as that sounds, doesn't come to them in a vacuum. In their minds, they had this whole backstory of what fire was all about. So the question is, what does fire mean to a first century Jew when they see something like this happen? Again, even John the baptizer told them, he says, you shall be baptized in the spirit and fire. So something about fire is significant about what God was up to. So the question is, what does fire mean? So with that, we can look at lots of different ways in which fire is kind of used throughout the Old Testament, the way they would have understood the concept of fire. Um, but here's a couple ways in which they would have been familiar with the concept of fire. Fire with regard to in Exodus 3, the burning bush. So if you're familiar with the story, Moses uh, goes up to Mount Sinai. While he's up in Mount Sinai, he notices something really strange. He sees a bush that's on fire. The strangeness about the bush is that the bush is not being consumed. So here's a bush on fire, but it's not being destroyed. It's just sitting there on fire. It was like, that's weird. That normally doesn't happen. Like, the reality is that's true. Exactly. That normally doesn't happen. The same way people normally don't have tongues of fire over their head. So what does it mean? Well, again, God in that setting tells Moses, take off your feet. You're on sacred ground. I'm here. My presence is here with you. And then the next thing that we see is Exodus 13, where we're familiar with the story of this pillar of fire that led or guided the people of Israel. So when God took the people of Israel out of Egypt, so they were no longer under these taskmasters in Egypt, no longer making bricks um, under these harsh slave-like conditions. They were no longer this oppressed people under the uh, thumb of uh, Pharaoh. Now they're under the leadership of God, and, and God is not pressing them down with this oppressive thumb and requiring all sorts of work for them. God is saying, I'll, I'll lead you, and the way I'll lead you is during the day, because it's, again, the desert. God says, I'm going to appear to you in a big cloud, and the cloud, is imagine if you're in the desert, is awesome, because it's really, really hot out in the desert, and if there's hot sun, God says, I will appear to you in a cloud, and then at nighttime, when it gets cold, because sometimes it's getting cold in the desert, I'm going to appear to you in a fire, so anywhere the cloud leads or anywhere the fire leads, you just follow that, and I will always guide you and take care of you. This is the way that God says, I will guide you. I will, I will, my presence will go with you wherever you go. Wouldn't it be awesome if God led us that way today? Like, like if you're like, God, where should I go get a job? And God's like, just follow the fire. Like, that's awesome. So, God, who should I marry? Where should I live? What house should I buy? Just follow the fire. The fire will lead you. And like, how awesome would that be? But, but that doesn't happen today in today's world. So um, we're, we're left with kind of like this uh, hit and miss game. You know, we're trying to figure God's will out and discernment out. We're praying with other people. We're meeting with other people. Really, at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're, we're seeking the fire. We're seeking God. God. What are you up to? What are you doing? How are you leading? How are you guiding? Speak to us through your people. So again, we see this pillar of fire which guided them. The third thing is that fire was no doubt would have been an 
uh, stirred up emotions or thoughts, I should say, about this altar. And um, in the book of Leviticus chapter 6, uh, we're told that the children of Israel had created this um, kind of mobile um, structure, which is called the tabernacle. So if you're familiar with the temple, this great big structure that eventually would end up being built in Jerusalem. Um, the tabernacle was sort of this mobile version of the temple. So they would break it down, they would set it back up. But one of the things that they were always to make sure it was always happening, always taking place within the center of this tabernacle was there was this big bowl. Inside that big bowl, they, God says, I, I want to make sure that the fire inside that big bowl never, ever goes out. So God basically hired or called, if you would, all sorts of priests. These were called Levites. Their main job, um, aside from us, all sorts of other duties, their main job was to always ensure that the fire never, ever, ever, ever went out. This is God's way of saying, the reason why I don't want the fire to ever go out, because the fire symbolizes my presence, and in the same way that my presence will never leave you, so you should never, ever let that fire go out. This is God's way of saying, I will never leave my people whom I love. So the question is, where's the fire now? Where's the fire now? It's on God's people. It's not in a tabernacle in the middle of the wilderness. It's not in a temple in Jerusalem. God's fire is on, within, upon every single one who calls upon God's name. You realize the significance of this? God's presence is not in some other locale. God's presence is not in some other location. You realize that almost every other type of religion in the world today has a sacred spot, a sacred destination in which some of it, it's the adherents need or are required to do some form of pilgrimage. You realize that for the most part in Christianity, the idea of pilgrimage in some ways is kind of a mute point. Like, where do we go to find God? He's everywhere. See, unlike other religions, there are occasions where you've got to go to some other location, like in Islam, you go to Mecca. Mecca is a very sacred and holy place. There's a couple other spots that are similar to that. But for the most part, you pray towards Mecca because that's where God's presence is most strongly sensed or felt. In Judaism, it was God's presence resided within Jerusalem, within the center of the temple. So you would think about or face towards Jerusalem. But within Christianity, it's, there's not a destination. There's not a location. There's not space, sacred space, because in a sense, every place is sacred. What that means is that even in this spot here is, is sacred space. Why? Because God's here because you're here. If you're in Christ, God's presence. That means that your house where you live, that means the coffee shops you frequent, that means the places where you work, wherever God's people gather is, is sacred. That means the cop car you drive around and the places that you work, the places that you find yourself in the midst of, that is sacred space. Because you're there because God's presence is upon you, within you. It's amazing when you think about this. This is really what he's describing. So I think what this means is that really the Holy Spirit is, next slide, is, is actually bringing at least three different aspects of relationship to God. On the one hand, it brings uh, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, that God's presence is everywhere God's people are at. Second thing is that it brings about really a passion for God. In other words, what we sense, how we feel, how we think, God begins to reshape our desires. See, this actually is greater than, better than just simply behavior modification. I would suggest that most Christians, but as well as most people that find bad patterns of activity in their life, most of us resort to a far less effective 
means of making our lives better. And what we do is we just say stuff like this. I'm going to change my behavior. Good job. Good luck. Because the reality is at some point you may change some behavioral patterns, but at some point those behavioral patterns will at some point come back and reclaim you or you'll pick up other bad behaviors that are just as bad. At the end of the day, what you've never really changed is the heart. But what the gospel does is it changes our passions, our desires, our longings, and we begin to love the things that God loves. We begin to hate the things that God hates. And what ends up happening is our actions then begin to follow, which kind of leads to the purity of God. The Holy Spirit brings the purity of God. The fire, the concept of fire, oftentimes is this purifying element that it brings a sense of cleansing, that whatever fire touches, it cleanses, it burns things that are burnable or consumable, and it refines things that are not consumable or burnable. It just refines them like silver and gold. It removes impurities, has this purifying element. This is what God's fire does, this concept of the Holy Spirit coming within us. It begins to live within God's people, and it brings about God's presence. It changes our passions, our desires, and it ultimately brings about a purity for God's people, for God. And this is one of the reasons why, again, the Bible is often, often filled with elements that describe, be holy for God is holy. Uh, In in other words, God's people, uh, the way that we live our lives should reflect something of the nature and the character of God. The way that we love, the way that we act towards other people, it should reflect God. But this is what we see with regard to, I think, the second element of God's spirit coming is that they receive God's presence within. Second thing, or third thing I should say, is they really received this worldwide message. Before I jump onto that, One of the things I would just say before I move on to the next point is when God's presence comes upon us in that way of describing God's love, God's power, God's uh, purity, one of the things that God defines himself as is love. God is love. So one of the ways I would suggest this, that one of the ways that you know that you have been filled with God's spirit is that you know that you know that you know that you're loved. You know that you're loved. You're not questioning, you're not wondering, you're not inching in. There is a sense of humble boldness whereby you can go before God because you know that you're loved. Imagine a child, right? Uh, One of my favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, would tell this story. And he was describing this story in the context of the Holy Spirit, where he would describe a, a father walking with his son. And while the father's walking with his son, they're holding hands. And while the father's walking with the son, what's happening there is sonship. Like, the kid knows he belongs to dad. All right, um, so legally, if you want to think of it this way, legally, that kid actually is 100% biologically connected to, related to, via DNA to that father. But every once in a while, that father might just stop, bend down, pick up his kid, and give him a big hug. He's just like, I love you, kiss him on the cheek. And in that moment, uh, Lloyd-Jones describes, that kid is overwhelmingly flooded with the knowledge that he really, truly belongs to dad. Is he any more... A son? No. But he has this assurance that he belongs. That is what he says, what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. If we find ourselves in moments where we lose sight of that, what we do is we revert to, by way of that inward curvature, to somehow trying to be affirmed by other people. We live our lives somehow trying to get others' attention. We live our lives trying to somehow define our own identity, some other means, some other way, by whatever we're good at or things that we're not good at, thinking somehow if I devote myself to this, my energies to this, I'll become good at this, and then people will affirm me and people will like me. You realize how at some point how exhausting that lifestyle is? 
because you never really know if you've done enough to appease those powers that you want to approve of you. So you're always filled with this great level of insecurity. But to the one who knows that the Father loves them because they've been filled with the Holy Spirit, they're free. They're free from this endless pursuit of trying to be affirmed by all these people that they don't really like, but they know they hold the power of life to some degree, and they're never really certain if they've got it. Do you realize how freeing it is to just know that you know that you know that God's spirit, God's presence is upon you, and he loves you? That's what I think Acts tells us about the Holy Spirit. These people have this overwhelming sense that we're loved by God. And it kind of comes out within the rest of the story, because here they are speaking in tongues. We'll kind of move into a second. And there's just this sense of joyful exuberance and confidence that at the end of this whole scenario, they, they, they're, they're like, you guys all look drunk. And then Peter stands up and is like, we're not drunk. It's like 9 o'clock in the morning, but 5 o'clock somewhere else. But the point of the matter is, is that we, it looks like they're drunk, but they're not. Why? Because there's this overwhelming sense of joyful exuberance that they all have because they know that God has affirmed them. God loves them. God cares for them. God is their father. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Third thing is we see that they uh, receive this worldwide message. This is the area that a lot of times people get really, really hung up on. Um, uh, they speak in tongues. I'll just be straight up and just say they spoke in other tongues. But it goes on to tell us that what they were speaking is the wonderful works of God. So the question oftentimes is asked, uh, are, are the tongues that they're speaking here the exact same type of tongues as in the book of First Corinthians? And the answer to that is sort of yes and no. Uh, no in the sense where, I should say yes in the sense that, yes, they're speaking in a different language that kind of comes upon them. They're not really expecting or looking for it. It just kind of comes upon them. So in that sense, yes. No in the sense where in the book of Corinthians it describes the languages that they're speaking are kind of unknown. They're unknown. In the book of Acts, they're known. They're actually known. There are others that are actually speaking other languages, but they didn't know. So imagine showing up at church, and if this was to be reduplicated, you'd start speaking like, I don't know, like a, a dialect of a language you've never learned before. All right? Say Celtic or whatever. Um, you're speaking in a language you've never heard before. You've never heard, and say there's someone over here, and there's, they're from that part of the world, and they're like, oh my gosh, I know exactly what they're saying. They're speaking my mother language. Like, I know exactly what they're saying. And they come to you, and they're like, do you know what you just said? They're like, no, I've never spoken that or said that before. Like, what, what, what do you mean what I say? Well, you said that God is amazing, whatever the case is. But this is kind of what's going on here. So it's, it's a unique phenomenon that's happening. But here's what's amazing about this. It's because as they're speaking in these unknown tongues, or these known tongues, I should say, within this context, in this situation, we're actually told that they're speaking languages that are known by others that are there. So again, because this is the Feast of Pentecost, there would have been lots of people in Jerusalem during this time of the year for the feast. So you can imagine there's maybe hundreds, maybe thousands beginning to gather because they see this joyful exuberance come over these people because of the presence of the Holy Spirit upon them. And they begin to speak in this phenomenal, unknown to them language, but known to others in that particular context. But what we're told is that this very long list of different types of languages, I won't read through all of them, but here's an example. It goes on to say, and what we heard is some of them uh, were shocked because we thought, you know, well, these guys are Galileans. So there's, it's a sense of like, you, you guys all are Galileans. Like, how can you be, it's kind of a put down actually, you guys are just like country folk. And how is it that you are country folk and yet you're speaking all of these other 
known languages. And it goes on to say that the languages that they were speaking were like from the Parthians or Medes, so that would be like Persia, um, part of the world that would be like Iraq or Iran or the Kurdish territory, um, all the way down to South Africa, or the, not South Africa, but North Africa, to Greece, Rome, all these areas. They're speaking all these different languages. And what it tells us is that they were speaking or declaring the wonderful works of God. So what does that mean? So what I would envision or imagine is that they're declaring the great things that God has done. So in other words, they're declaring the fact that God loves them. God sent his son Jesus to die. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, for our shame, bore our consequences, rose again from the dead. They're declaring these wonderful works of God. In other words, the very first time the church begins to transition from a uniquely Jewish context, the message that's first preached is in the tongue of every known language available. You know what this means? This means that God does not have a preference of a race. Do you know that? God does not have a preferential language. God doesn't say the language of heaven is Hebrew or American, right, or English, you know. God doesn't have a preferred race of people. What we see here is that God is basically going public with the message, God going public with his own glory, saying, my salvation is for people of all ages, all social economic people, all different races. My gospel, my good news is for all that need it, for this entire world. And what that means in a lot of ways, you can kind of play that out, and the New Testament does spend some time playing this out, but the reality is, That means that racism has absolutely no place in the life of a Christian at all. It's totally inexcusable because it completely runs counter to the heart and the mind of the gospel. And so what we see is when they're speaking in these tongues, these these languages, they're declaring the wonderful works of God. And then finally, in closing, what we see is that they all receive this brand new relationship with God. Now, again, this is where we got to kind of think about this for just a moment, because a lot of us, if you are a Christian here today, we oftentimes just take the subject of the Holy Spirit for granted. We're just like, of course, you know, I prayed a prayer, Jesus came into my heart, and the Holy Spirit's there, and we just kind of live the rest of our lives as if he's just sort of this quiet third party that, you know, we received him years ago when we prayed a prayer, and that's about it. But do you realize that for early first century Jews that were coming from a Hebraic perspective, from a Jewish perspective, that God was associated closely with the temple, that God, you would pray and you would go to the temple. What Jesus was basically saying, no, God's presence at some point is going to go public and everybody who call upon God's name will become a new temple. God's presence will not be located in Jerusalem. God's presence will not be located in some part of the world. God's presence will be in every person's heart and life. So what Jesus is basically describing is that he's making all things new. And what we have is this God that's constantly working towards making all things new. I'm going to finish with a passage out of the book of Revelation, chapter 21. You guys can turn if you'd like. Revelation 21, verses 5 through 6. It says this, then there's one sitting on a throne, and he said, look, I'm making all things new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then he finishes with this line that actually comes from the book of Isaiah. And this little phrase, he says, to all who are thirsty, 
I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And if you've been familiar with the storyline of the Bible, you know the phrase the water of life is also another analogy of the Holy Spirit. And so it seems as if what Jesus is declaring here, I am making all things new. And the means by which I am making all things new is through this unique new relationship that I want all to enter into, through, into, by, with the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence. So what does it mean for us? That means is that if you're somebody here and you look at your life and you realize you have bought the gospel of this world that says just work harder, do better, think more, educate yourself more, at some point you will, by imbibing that gospel, break when that gospel breaks. And when it breaks, you'll be left broken. And what we have is a God that basically says the way to wholeness, the way to healing, the way to salvation is not through working harder, not through trying better, not through good advice, but through good news, through gospel, proclamation, that I have come to rescue you, not from you arising or ascending or climbing to me, but through me coming down to you to rescue you. We have a God that says, I will come to you. No matter how far you may have felt like you've run, no matter how broken you really are, no matter how alienated your sins may have separated you from me, no matter how disgusting you may look at yourself and think, I have fallen down far, I need to be rescued, the good news is that we have a God that rescues. This is the gospel that the New Testament proclaims. We have a Holy Spirit that comes to us, just like he did at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, And he makes all things new. This is the Holy Spirit that Jesus says he's not out there. He's not some sort of inanimate power or force you got to tap into like Star Wars. Which, by the way, I love, but that is not at all what the Holy Spirit's like at all. The Holy Spirit is a person that makes all things new. So one word that I use in every analogy I gave today, it's the word receive. That God gives gifts. But with every gift giver, there needs to be a reciprocating party that says, I receive. So the way that we receive is we just open our hearts and say, God, I need that. I want you. I want you to come in. I want you to bring about an awareness of. Because the fact of the matter is, is that if you're here this morning, you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit already does live inside you. All right, so let's just be theologically accurate and admit and confess that that is already an actual fact and a reality. But the also, if you were to carry it further into our experience, many of us continue to live lives of just pure brokenness. We live lives purely disconnected from the actions and the works and the heart and the passion and the love and the motivation of God because we who have begun in the spirit, are trying to become made perfect in the flesh. So we do things like this. We start out saying, God, I love you. You're awesome. I need saving. But then we go on with the rest of our life, trying to somehow make our lives amount to something great. When God says, you're trying to be perfect in the flesh, and what you need is to just simply submit afresh anew to the working of my spirit. So we're going to respond my encouragement to you is let's open our hearts and respond to God's spirit. Say, God, we need you. And I worship him, come on up. And what I want to do is I want to invite you to respond to God. The way we respond, as we do weekly, is we sing. So if you know the words of songs, again, just my encouragement to you to just close your eyes. 
focus on God, if you just want to come up to the front, uh, sit on the rug, or just get on your knees before God, then, then please do that. I mean, honestly, it's a, it's a way for you to just focus your mind and your attention on God. We'll respond by partaking of communion. We partake of the communion as a reminder regularly to us of the fact that he was crushed, he was bruised, he was broken, so that we who are crushed, bruised, and broken could actually be made whole. And not just us personally, but through us, outwardly to other relationships that we perhaps have been the cause of breaking other relationships. We have a God that wants to make those things whole. And prayer. If you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, we have people that would love to pray for you, people that are going to be over off to the side that would love to pray for you. So what I want to do right now is why don't we all stand, we're going to respond, we're going to sing, partake of communion. Let's use our bodies as instruments to respond to God. And let's approach God with a mentality and a posture that just simply says, God, here I am. Take me. Take all of me. Take the broken parts. Take the parts I'm embarrassed to even admit that are actually part of me. God, take it all. Because look, at the end of the day, what are you going to do with all those broken parts in your life that you're aware of? Some of you might not even be aware of them yet, but everybody else around you is aware of those things. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? It's that other person is like, that's called your spouse. Um, if you're wondering, like, who is that person that knows all about those messed up areas of my life that I don't know about? It's called your spouse. Um, point of the matter is, some of you will get that on your way home, but the point of the matter is, we have a, what are you going to do with those things? Where are you going to take those things and find wholeness? This is what the heart of the gospel is all about. We have a God that says, no matter how broken, messed up, sinful, alienated you are, bring all that to me, and I'll bring healing. I'll bring wholeness. I'll receive you. I won't cast you away. I won't shun you. I won't give you a cold shoulder. I won't be passive-aggressive with you. I will warmly, lovingly embrace you as a son and a daughter, and I will treat you with the greatest level of dignity, respect, because I love you, created you, and now I've redeemed you. Let's respond to this, God. Let's open up our hearts to him. If you're here this morning, there's just areas of closeness in your heart. My challenge to you would be to just say, God, help me to open up. So God, we come to you, we confess our sin, our brokenness, we confess our need for you. So God, let the posture of our bodies, the posture of our heart be one that just says we're we're open. Holy Spirit, come, remake, rebuild broken areas, reshape areas that have been marred and just crushed and ruined. Make us new.